This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Mary Lee, welcome to Better Reading. Hi, Cheryl. Lovely to be here. Yeah. I mean, this is just such an extraordinary story. There is so much to it that I love. Firstly, that you're the wife of the author of Mao's Last Dancer, which is uh, extraordinary in itself because that was uh, the best-selling book. Your husband is Lee Swear. Is that right? Did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah. Lovely. And really, I mean, I remember that book just selling its socks off. But this is the other side to that story. It's the memoir of of your story and you're about ballerina. Um, And I guess in a way it's a sequel to Mal's Last Dance. Anyway, we'll be talking about that. It's called Mary's Last Dance and it's a powerful and uplifting memoir about chasing an impossible dream and sacrificing one's own ambition for the love of a child. It is a moving and unforgettable story of passion, dedication and devotion. I, I've got to tell you, beautifully, beautiful story, beautifully told, and a beautiful backstory. So over to you, Mary. Tell me, I mean, it's just such an extraordinary life. Uh, tell me a little bit about your background, where you grew up, how you met Lee, and how you came to speaking with me. Well, the the likelihood of, of a little girl from Rockhampton meeting someone from a commune in Shindau through ballet and dancing together and ending up in Queensland is very bizarre. I wouldn't it's so have been unlikely. It. Yeah, it's so, so unlikely. unlikely. And when we think about it now, we just go how magical. And actually, we've been married 33 years and have three children. So, and Lee's a best-selling author. And when I met him, he didn't speak in English. But anyway, I grew up in a very large, loving family, eight children. I was uh, one of three girls, the eldest of the three girls, and very much a tomboy. My mother was very genteel, got Coralie. Um, played the piano, but ended up having eight children in 11 years. My father was eccentric and quite brilliant. He was an architect and they were really, really a a soul couple. So mum did the traditional role. I was a crazy wild tomboy. And so the opportunity with a friend said she was taking her daughter to dance and would my, would I like to go? And my mother said, oh, please. So on a Saturday morning, I was picked up for that very first ballet lesson. And the teacher actually happened to be an extraordinary woman. What are the odds of that? Uh, An extraordinary teacher. And from that very first class, I remember jumping into the air and thinking, this is great. And I just couldn't wait to get there. And I was She used to often call me the wild woman of Borneo when I was very careless and wild, but she obviously saw something in me. And when I was was very strong and I had this sort of quite easy ballon, which is an unusual thing for, you know, um, dancers to have, very natural and natural musicality. 
from my mother. So at about 15, she talked to my my parents and said, look, you really need to think about saving some money and sending her to the Royal Ballet School in London. So, you know, this brilliant lady from Rockhampton, very English, very proper, said you should send her. And my parents were, you know, they're bright people and dad was interested in architecture. They were very well read and they thought, well, you know, that's fine. If it doesn't work out, she can come back. And they knew I was a little bit cat in a hot tin roof. So I was How old were you by then? 16 when I left. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, just about to turn 17, but 16. And um, the Royal Ballet School, I was there for 18 months. And there was not a lot of information there at the time about auditioning and no one was really helping you. You had to figure it out yourself. So I, I, I'm pretty street smart and found out this little other girl from Royal Ballet School was going to do an audition. Now, hang on, I just want to backtrack a little bit because you've kind of jumped. Well, you've kind of jumped from being a young girl in Rockhampton to now being in London, London. trying to work it yourself out. And so, when it was decided, and you obviously wanted to go, but when your parents must have come up with the money, and mm-hmm. as it's, it wasn't the first time you ever got on a plane. Uh, no, my mother had been sending me down to see my grandmother, Bridie, in Brisbane right. whenever, um, you know, the Australian ballet or something, there was a special time because Bridie couldn't get up to mum and it was one less child for mum to deal with and gave me a bit of time with my grandmother. So I had been to, and my father had taken us to Sydney and um uh, we hadn't all flown. I think we probably drove, but, you know, he took us to all the architecture, the Opera House and Canberra right. and all of that. So we had sort of travelled as far as Melbourne, actually. And but, do you remember how you were feeling when you were only 16 years old and you were going to leave your parents, you were going to leave Rockhampton and you were going to London? I well, mean, the, you know, yeah, one of yeah, the largest yeah. cities in the world. When I wrote the book, it was quite sad because, the, you know, the <laughs> seven children all came to the airport plus the Agnew family. Everyone either had six or five or eight children. So the, the McHenrys lined up at the front, you know, small to tall, and the Agnews lined up at back, and they're all crying, you know, there's just one little <laughs> shed at Rockhampton Airport. And um, But my, my mother, because I had to go and do solo seal in Brisbane before we left, and um, so it was very sad, but my parents actually took me to the Royal Ballet School. They took me to London. Oh, wow. Yeah. But so, And that was the first time my mother said she slept in 20 years. <laughs> That's a big 40, 40 at the time. <laughs> That's a big investment for your parents, isn't it? That's, that won't, you know, things wouldn't have been cheap back then. No, they weren't. But all the, the children were billeted out separately, two per one family, two boys, two girls, two whatever. But... Mum and Dad, they, um, Dad became a very successful architect. He had designed the general hospital in, um, in Rockhampton and they were avid readers and historians. So my mum just said her life, she passed away last year and she said, your life was so interesting and it gave me such an interesting life because mum continued to come and visit me every year. Oh, wow. By, yeah, for five weeks, cooked my food, did my washing, and she was not not a stage mother at all, but she just came for support. And yeah. she was great company. You know, you could talk to her about anything, but she wasn't really a ballet mother, if you know what I mean. She just yeah. um, was great company. I know what you mean. So tell me about your first impressions of arriving in London. Well, Oh, well, we got into a black cab. Can you imagine? It's just like something out of the movies and went to St. James 
Park. We were in a hotel right near Buckingham Palace. And then my mother took me to Oxford Street because I didn't own a coat or boots in Rockhampton. You didn't have any of that. You couldn't even buy that stuff. So, you know, it was going to be, it was end of August. So it was hot, but going to go into winter and they were leaving in a few weeks time. So just doing, seeing all that. And, but really, I just couldn't wait to get to the Royal Ballet School. I was like, enough of sight. I don't want to sight I want to get started. So I was quite relieved when they, <laughs> they left, actually. And then I felt really sad. But, um, and then I did get quite homesick my first year. But then I went back that first year. They brought me back home. And then after that, I was like, okay, I don't need to be back in Rockhampton anymore. And that was the end of it. I just started to fly then. So tell me about walking into, I mean, how many people would have been in the group and they would have been ballerinas, young ballerinas Mm. from all over the world. What was your feeling around that? Well, there were about 80 of them. There were four groups. There was one group that had trained from the Royal Ballet School and they were just perfect. They were the ones they really wanted. And then there was an international group, which was us. There were a few people from Australia and a few from Canada one from America. So it was a really interesting group. And there was another sort of English group and then another sort of semi-foreign one. So there are about, I'm pretty sure there are about 80, 80 of us, four different classes. And then the following year, it goes down to two and then it goes down to one. So you, each each year you had to re-audition to get invited to do another year. And you were feeling confident? I was a colonial in London at the time, not particularly confident, no. No, no. yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, a real colonial. And, um, and they had a different view of us then. I think that's quite changed now. But I just loved what I did. I don't know that confidence was ever, confidence came to me later, you know, with knowledge. But I just loved it. And it was so fascinating. We had all these different teachers. And I could go to Covent Garden and stand in the back and see uh, Margot Fontaine and Brishnikov and then, you know, Rudolph, I walked into Rudolph's life, he was part of, um, that's how I got my job with Rudolf Nureyev because he was doing a brand new production of Romeo and Juliet and they needed more dancers. And I got a call from one of the ballet mistresses saying she'd seen me perform in the school performance at Covent Garden and she'd like to see me again. And so I went and did uh, an audition for them and Rudolph was in class and that's how I got my job. And then I was part of this amazing production where he took us to New York and France and Australia and took us all over the world yeah. and very involved in this company for the next 10 years. And we all sort of thought that was normal, but now this group of people, London Festival Ballet, that was part of that realised the standard was so incredible, incredibly high, but that's what we grew up with. And you kept up with all your peers. Oh, yeah, and surpassed because I um, I got into London Festival Ballet. I was 19 and by 23 I was a principal. I did my first Swan Lake in London at the Coliseum when I was 23, yeah. Yeah, wow. Okay, so tell me how you met Lee. So I, when I was about 25 or 26, this amazing English director called Ben Stevenson, who was always a choreographer, was a choreographer, worked with London Festival Ballet, and I just loved his ballets. There was some sort of romance about him, and we developed a relationship. And he um, was very interested in me. So when his company, which was Houston Ballet, came to London, I snuck out of my out of the theatre and went in a black cab hiding incognito to see his company 
and Lee was on stage and he could see me in the audience. And he just wandered down and sat next to me and said, oh, I saw you dance last night. You were beautiful. And I was trying to hide, you know, because I didn't want anyone to know I was there thinking I might like to join that company. So I was very non-committal. But anyway, two years later, I did join that company as a principal dancer and Lee was my partner, dance partner. And that, you know, we tried not to transfer that into life because it's very difficult to find a dance partner as well. Particularly when you're a principal, you, you, you're looking for that, you know, same age, same height, same work ethic, all of those things. And chemistry. And chemistry. So it's the same as in marriage. It's, it's, a, it's a tricky one. But anyway, that did transfer, luckily for us, into marriage because dancers didn't really marry or have babies a generation ago. I think we were the first because, you know, you weren't guaranteed a job back. But luckily for me, Ben Stevenson, when I did feel pregnant with Sophie, he guaranteed my position back to where I was because you're a year away and then other people have to do your work. And so that was amazing. And I walked straight back into my job five months after I had Sophie and Lee's parents came from China and lived with us in a little garage apartment out the back and minded Sophie, which made me so happy. So the only thing I had to do was dance really and look after Sophie. They did all the washing, beautiful Chinese food, sometimes dumpling. (laughs) And so that was all very wonderful until we performed in, um, we, I was invited by the Australian Ballet to perform at the Opera House and the Queensland Ballet uh, for their 30 year anniversary. And Lee came up the stairs. We'd taken Sophie with us and said, you know, a balloon popped and Sophie didn't move and all the other children started. How old was she then? 16 months. Yeah, wow. And she didn't move. And I said, well, she was probably looking at something else because deaf children do um, babble. They go, yeah. ga, ga, ma, ma, ma. So there was no way that I thought and we were in a two-language household, so mainly she was having Chinese spoken to her, really, except for me. But when we came back from Australia, we did have her tested and she had an ABR and the doctor walked in the room and said she's profoundly deaf. And from that moment on, we both really had, didn't have, we didn't have the same life. It was a different life. How did you feel about that? What was your first reaction to it? Oh, shock. Yeah. Complete, complete and utter shock because, you know, we thought, we had this beautiful little 18-month-old by that time and she hadn't heard a thing we'd said. So it was like we'd lost one child and gained another yeah. um, that needed uh, a massive amount of, she needed someone to be her communicator. And so we had, we had a tour of Canada and I went, we went to Canada and as I was doing this, this last dance, that's why I ended up calling it Mary's Last Dance, is walking across the stage, this music, thinking this child is never going to hear this beautiful music and then who was going to look after her? You know, it had to be me. And what was I going to do? I mean, I wanted to hear her speak. I wanted to talk to her. So then I decided that I would have to stop and then, you know, then the whole, a whole another whole life happened. I had to learn about the deaf community Hearing aids. Okay, well, let let me. And so, how old were you then? Uh, Thirty-one. And how old would a ballerina be when they retire? Probably thirty-five, thirty-six. Right. Yeah. So I want to go back to your daughter, to Sophie. She she was a perfectly happy, love you know, loving child, wasn't she? So perfectly. whatever it is you were doing, she was communicating with you well enough, wasn't she? 
Well, there were four of us looking after her. Yeah. And one was speaking Chinese and one was not. And Sophie is um, deaf children. Their, um, their motor skills, their fine motor and often even their physical ability are quite ahead of yeah. other children because their eye contact is so intense. So she never left us. She yeah. followed us everywhere and we thought that was just smart. Yeah. And we yeah. thought she was just good. So but she'd learned a lot up to that point, hasn't massive, she? Massive, massive amount. Yeah. And, and they do babble and it's fascinating because a, a friend of ours brings over her little deaf baby, her, she, I think it's six months now, but his visual skills, what he follows, he just follows the room and I'm just yeah. amazed. And there's no sort of screaming or carrying on because you're just reading every situation and they look so bright and we even at 12 months we did question the doctor and said to the our pediatrician you know sometimes she doesn't turn to her name and he did a little bit of a clap or something and said oh no she's fine you know yeah but that's because she was watching the hair movements that's right absolutely and they they just don't miss a trick and today her visual skills she's she's off the charts I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I want to go back to how you felt about that decision at the time. How were you feeling? I tried not to feel because it was so difficult. But I just, you know, I just loved this baby. So what was I, you know, I just loved her and this is human. And, and I guess the question I asked myself is what, what is going to make us happy in 10 years' time or, you know, whatever. And the love of family was more important to me than another performance, although it was sad. Mm-hmm. And in the end, as an adult, you know, I mean, it was a big growing up experience for me. That passion for ballet never left me. And that's why I'm still working. And I'm working in a professional environment. I couldn't have picked a better company my boss is my husband who knows how good I am at what I do. There's not much else I can do really. Like it's the only thing I've ever wanted to do and it's the only thing I'm good at. Domestically, I'm a bit of a basket case really. <laughs> I think we can. Sophie can attest to that. Yeah. Okay, so tell me about the first couple of years. It would have been challenging, I guess, because it was a great unknown, isn't it? You know? Oh, it was It was 
very difficult and it, yeah. and it was terrifying because yeah. I had a group of other mothers that I'd met and their children were starting to speak and, you know, with a speed that was like frightening and I had this little child with hearing aids that was sort of only hearing small and you sort of think it's going to improve or hearing's going to improve and then you go into a, an auditory booth and you're wanting to like push the child's head towards the clown so that you know there's some response and there's none and it doesn't it doesn't improve but you know they do gather language but then eventually a therapist who I sought out she was an auditory verbal therapist and she just said Mary she's always going to be deaf she's going to be a deaf child in a hearing world and it's going to be a struggle and she encouraged me to look into the implant because the research, there wasn't any research out on the implant and there wasn't any internet and there was no information. And the information that was out there was, you know, they've just started to do it in children. So, you know, there was no language, there was no assessments. But I just sort of, this woman, I really believed in her and she said, Mary, it gives them hearing. And hearing is not language. And that's what I understood. So if she, if Sophie could have a channel, then I could do the language. And we'd, I'd spent two years with her, but by this time Sophie was four. And I just knew she couldn't leave me. She couldn't go to school she could, unless she could communicate. So we fought to have the very first implant because there were therapists that didn't, didn't agree with it. And there was the surgeon who did agree with it. And even my husband questioned me and said, you don't always know. And I said, well, I don't know, but I do know if she gets a channel, mm. I can teach her language. And, and that's um, what you did. And that's what I did. It took 10 years wow. but uh, and even longer, really, because so she was very behind, but I, I put her into uh, normal, you know, normal hearing schools. And so, you know, for the first, it was difficult but her teenage years were very difficult because people tell secrets, language goes around or people turn their head and that was, and probably in hindsight, maybe she should have started to sign then or, um, which I did offer her, but she didn't. So later in life when she was about 23, so she went to university with no signing and she passed, you know, she got a court, you know, course at, um, undergrad from Melbourne Uni, which must have been so difficult because those big rooms and... Yeah, incredible. Um, but anyway, she got a job. She used to volunteer for this organisation called Here For You, which was about young deaf teenagers staying in school. And they asked her when she finished university to run that program. And the person next to her, so Sophie was running the oral program and she was running the signing program. And this deaf person told Sophie about all these wonderful things that deaf people could get you know, could have with teleprompters and all kinds of things and sort of introduced her to that world because I couldn't do that. I didn't really know it. And then she taught her to sign. Of course, with Sophie's visual skills, she learned sign language in a year. Yeah, wow. Very fluent in Auslan. Yeah. By the time, you know, that was over, which for her was a really, it was a great relief. I mean, she used to tell me, Mum, I went to a deaf party and I overheard for the first time. Yeah, wow. And I'm thrilled. And after actually writing the book, both Lee and I sat down, we just thought, why didn't we learn to sign? And so we, every Monday now, Sophie and her other deaf friend teach us sign language. So we're, 
So often I'll just, because I can do the alphabet and a few things and when Sophie wakes up in the morning or something, she's she doesn't have a hearing on so I can just, you know, I'm going such and such. And um, except where our brains are a bit dull and we're very... It's a little bit harder. We forget things. <laughs> so but, during that time, uh, what did Lee do? Did he continue to dance? Oh, yes. Yes. So it was busy. So yeah. we... We came out to Australia in 1995 and he had three years with the Australian Ballet. And luckily for me, he was really, it was great. He just said, you know, you're my best coach. So he let me coach him. So even though I wasn't performing, I was still, he didn't lock me out. Yeah, you're and still there. Yeah, which was amazing because you had, in order for me to have my job today, I had to keep my hand in and then when Sophie sort of got settled a bit into school I started teaching professional students around the corner from where I live and that got me teaching again and then I taught the Australian Ballet for 10 years which I loved just part-time but still I would go to performances and things so I kept that going and now I've been working for this company now for eight years. And you had two more children? Two more children, Tom who is, um, he's a teacher now and he's did Chinese and ESL and he's just was in Shanghai running a language, language school and the little ones in um, at university here doing business. Right. And do you know why Sophie was born deaf? No. no. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I think if Sophie has a relationship possibly, I think they can detect a gene yeah. You know, I don't know if that's going to be a problem. I mean, I don't assume it's a problem if you have a deaf baby. She yeah. would choose what she was going to do. I think Sophie thought this book was very important for the deaf population because they're never talked about and there isn't anything about their... Well, that's what I was going to ask you, that what led you to tell your story? Sophie. Sophie led me to tell my story because my children were very adverse to publicity or anything because they've had quite a lot. Yeah. And they were very good about it. And then finally they were just like, no more. And I'm a very private person as well. And I'd seen the amount of work that Lee had done with the book. And I worked very hard anyway, so I, I really didn't do it. But then Sophie was up here um, before she went to China. She was waiting on a visa. And she'd started to write a few things down. And then she said, Mum, really, it's your story to tell, you need to tell it. And I said, Sophie, I can't. I can't do all that work. No. And I knew what it would take. And she said, I will help you. And she was sort of in between jobs. And I thought, well, you know, giving her something to do, thinking I wouldn't write the book. I'd just be playing along. And then she would come and wake me up in the morning, go, Mum, let's go coffee. And she'd hand me the book and she'd go, start writing. I'd go, writing what? <laughs> she said, it doesn't matter, Mum. Write anything. And I did because it was her. I would do anything for Sophie. And then she would go home, then we would go home, and she'd type it all up. It was so I wrote 460,000 words. In wow. Her, and she t- would type it all up. And by the time she left for China, we had 160,000 words. So we had a book. And then this incredible editor of Lee's just wanted to know more information. So then it got to 460,000 words. And then the greatest joy was having Lee sit opposite me and Sophie at the table too and me and we were doing the final edit with all with pens in our hands and she editing, checking every line. And I just thought, God, what are the chances of that? 
Yeah. That was such a joy. You know, you come across as it's just also matter of fact, right? But your incredible achievements, you know, a professional ballerina, raising a family, raising a deaf child, and then writing a book. And then your husband, well, your husband writing a book and then you writing a book. That's a lot for a family to achieve, don't you think? I guess so, but <laughs> it's not normal, Mary. It's not normal. It's unusual. Yeah. I mean, that um, the joy of Sophie now, because Sophie had to be during all this. Yeah. This is where I'm really a master. Sophie had to be reimplanted. I'm going to cry. Oh. So, so last year, she had to be reimplanted, and and we didn't really know because we're first, you know, recipients. Yeah. So it's a cochlear implant, isn't yeah, it? So yeah, so she, she just basically gave up on life because she couldn't hear and there were no solutions. She kept going to be remapped and everything. Finally, I got her to a surgeon. He said, Mary, it's a soft fail and it'll have to come out. And Sophie just said, when? So last year we flew to Melbourne. She had to be reoperated on. It was so terrifying and she was 30 at the time, her 30th birthday, nice birthday. We came back and so she got turned on, but it's completely different sound. Oh, wow. It's hard to so her brain had to adjust yeah. for that. She couldn't work. She yeah. couldn't. And yeah. so having the book with me and being part of that, it was basically the only thing she had the strength to do. Yeah. Wow. Now she's great a year and a half later, but 31-year-olds don't want to be waiting around for their life to... And sometimes she'd literally just like collapse, just like, you know, I think, is she dead? No. Yeah. So much information. Brain, yeah, readjusting to that sound. Now she's fantastic. But, um, and that's not something we expected. And it's not something she expected. Yeah. Stop her life, you know. Yeah, terrible. And frightening, you know. What am I going very, to do? Yeah. Very frightening. And she worked so hard for independence and she was dependent on me again. And yeah. she was like, that's not me. Yeah. I haven't worked. She worked so hard. She's such an achiever. Oh, I wonder it. where she gets that from. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> She's not like me. She's very tidy and genteel. <laughs> I don't know where she gets that from. My grandma, her grandmother, not me. Not you. Honestly, you're a superstar. I do love your story, Mary. It's really extraordinary. And I'd love to chat with you a bit more, but we've got to go. The book is called Mary's Last Dance. I can't thank you enough for joining us today. I've enjoyed our conversation very much. Me too. Thanks, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.